Hello everyone and welcome to the new episode of UX Banter podcast. This podcast is presented by Galaxy UX Studio and powered by Galaxy Weblinks. Hello. Our guest today is no ordinary artist. He's someone who makes art with machines from writing books, blogs, filmography, photography, design, research to sculpture art. He's a master of all with a dynamic personality. Please welcome an academic par excellence, a teacher and a personal mentor of mine, professor of interaction design at Code University of Berlin, Mr. Daniel Bazo. Uh, Dushan, thank you very much. That's a very, very kind introduction. It's it's a pleasure to be joining you on your on your podcast and uh, and to have known and worked with you for so long. How long it has been? I mean, about uh, I think I graduated in two thousand and fourteen, so about eight years now. Uh, I think maybe we. I think we met at an introductory lecture that I was doing with first year bachelor, and we were talking about web platforms and developing and thinking about the web. Not as individual pages, but as a as a, a broader ecosystem. And I think that's the first conversation I remember you having. And I was talking about the last time that we met. So that is about eight years, and you know mm-hmm. the collaboration is about the twelve years that we've been in touch. And you have been a, such a great teacher that you always pushed us um, ahead of the curve. I remember that one conversation that I really want to you know, put it right in the front is that. Sometime around 2030, we were having this discussion and I asked you that, where do you think uh, the future is headed? What is the next big thing is going to be? And you being a teacher, uh, you just answered that you tell us it, it's your future. You are the ones who is going to define how the digital ecosystem in the world will look like. And it had such a profound impact on my life that you know every time, whenever we think about the future, so rather than following the trends, the idea is that now we are setting out to define how the world should be and how it should come out of it. So uh, that was the time when you were a teacher. Now you are sitting in a chair of, you know, if, if I can, if I may call you a colleague of mine, because in the same industry, where do you think this is all headed? Do you think the answers change? No, I, I don't think the answer has changed. Um, some of the questions for right now, the local questions, are changing very, very fast. And, and for a long time, people have been saying, oh, the future is accelerating, the future is accelerating, everything's getting faster and faster and faster. And there's a point where you have to go, surely this is nonsense. How can it get faster and faster and faster? But we still keep breathing, we still keep eating, we still live at the pace of human beings. And I think there is this acceleration, but there is a disconnect also between any grounding, but the things underneath, the things that sustain our lives about being with family, about communicating with other people, about living our lives, a lot of it's supported by technology that we design and we think of and conceive, that doesn't change, doesn't go away. And anybody listening that's been around more than a few years will see VR come for the third time now. True. And uh, every time it gets a little bit technologically better, but every time everything is promised. But the basics of... Can I take a train to go to work, to see my family? Can I pay my bills? Can I have good health care? These are all these objects around us. These still need designing. And new combinations are always invented. And it is still the young designers, engineers, scientists, artists, visionaries, who will see new ways of putting these things together and maybe conceive of new ways 
to apply technologies to different problems or all problems. But also, um, I remember talking a long time ago with you, we didn't get where we are today by design. We got here by stumbling and trying things out. <laughs> and occasionally people would get lucky and everybody would say, oh, they're a genius. That's absolutely true. So what is the importance of interaction designing, designing experiences for people with technology? Because that is, I think, the direction that this conversation was headed, that we are still designing for new interactions in the same way as taking the train to meet the family. Absolutely. I think for me, it, it's a complicated discussion that some, in some areas is difficult to grasp, to think about what is interaction. Because actually, the interaction to be designed is the thing below the surface. It's, it's the why and the way that people think about something they might want to do. Um, and then the instantiation in the world, the surface, the user interface, whether it's a ticket machine or it's a physical computing thing or it's a screen or a touch screen or a voice interface, is only how that system that's been designed appears in the world. And I think that's a really interesting thing to try to communicate because people that are not within the field of interaction design only see the surface and they think everything exists in the surface, but actually the important work goes underneath and the surface is an indication of this important structure, the actual interaction design that's underneath. And when you apply that into saying, what does this feel like? That's when we talk about the experience of the users. And there's an interesting point from um, the Wright and McCarthy book to British writers who wrote The Experience of Technology, which is a fantastic book and very easy to read, that they make this point is that we don't use technology. We experience it just like everything in our lives. We don't use coffee or tea or knives and forks. We experience them. We don't use food. We experience it. These days, anything that you buy, any service that is being provided to you, it is part of the experience that you order food, it delivers in 30 minutes. If you want to order groceries, it is, you know, arriving at the doorstep. It is about that experience that you're having with that particular service. It is designed in a way that mm. rather than, you know, spending money for necessities, people are buying experience days to buy, to, to just ride supercars or having those balloon rides. Holidays mm -hmm. have become more of an experience rather than uh, those relaxing days that people wanted to go on to. There are two levels within that. When one stops and thinks about what it is to be alive, we experience the world first and foremost, from very early childhood through to adulthood and old age. Everything we do is an experience. And then one can think from a technological sense about designing experiences or buying experiences, jumping out of an airplane for fun, riding on a roller coaster, uh, having a sumptuous, expensive meal, um, spending a night in a fancy hotel or walking on a beautiful beach. And these are experiences, but it's an amplification of what we do every day. And I think uh, I'm Mark Hassenzahl, who's a um, professor of interaction design at Siegen University in Germany and has written very many fantastic papers and books about this, talks about the difference between some descriptions of user experience design and actually designing experiences. And he makes a, a distinction to say, when one thinks about the surface of something like an iPhone and you, you pull down to refresh a list and it bounces and it has a physics model in it, and we think about the colors and the icons, he calls this the aesthetics 
of the interaction. A great example he uses is to think about the Philips wake-up clock in that it's a sunrise alarm clock. And rather than just going and just from an engineering perspective, I need to wake you up. I will make a loud and annoying noise. It's actually an unpleasant experience. And when you think of what was a beautiful morning that I remember waking up, oh, and the sun, it was spring and the sunshine woke me up and there were birds singing and I could hear the river or some other romantic thing. And it's a beautiful experience. And he says, in one situation, people are designing, what color is it going to be? And the other is, what are you going to feel? when you use this. And he, he separates these two things. And I think that's an interesting perspective to think about user experience. It relates to something very, very human rather than it being about the color of the icons. That's really deep and profound, I must say. And see, these are the things which every time I have this conversation or any conversation with you, I, there is always a lot of takeaways which leave me speechless, which doesn't happen that often. <laughs> so... This is, this is it's, it's, it's easy to have conversation like this and think of very polarized examples to prove a point. And, and the, the, the middle ground is often much muddier and much more nuanced than this. But I think there is this very strong argument that is easily overlooked is that we do experience our whole lives. And so much technology ignores the experience that actually using this web page is annoying it's frustrating, or it's mildly depressing, or I feel coerced. When you have an, a, a dialogue box that comes up and says, we want to tell you all the new things about our new product, is that okay? And the, the button says, yeah, great. That's putting words in my mouth because I don't want to say, yeah, great. I want to say, get lost, go away. I'm busy, I need to do some work. <laughs> you know, this is your marketing message. It's important to you, but it's not important to me. And when you put the, the button text there saying, yeah, great, I'd love to find out. And I don't have the option to say, no, go away. I feel coerced. I feel my agency has been taken away. There is a writer called Brem who wrote about this and he developed the theory of reactance. And it's this feeling of being 10 years old and shouting inside your head at somebody saying, no, I won't do what you tell me because somebody is trying to take a little bit of your agency away. And, and it makes you feel disempowered. And, and this is an experience. And sometimes people design these things into their products thinking they're amazing. And you go, oh my gosh, I'm having such a bad experience with this. It's just mildly annoying and irritating. So does this not correlate with the heuristics by uh, Don Norman or Jakob Nelson, which says that user control and freedom that has to be integrated in the design that anytime that you are um, looking or working with any sort of user interface, it has to allow you to diagnose where you are and what you want to do. And that sort of freedom has to be incorporated in the design that you're actually working with. I mean, this goes to the fundamentals of design that anytime that um, we are working with any sort of interaction. It, it has to be considered the human factors um, about that, you know, uh, human factors of interaction into the mix. Yeah, I think there's a strong element of that. Johnny Ive from Apple Computer, I've seen a great quote. I mean, I think he sits and thinks of great quotes alongside designing great things. Uh, but he said, when you design something, you must remember that you're designing two products the one that you design and the one that the users use, meaning that people will take what you think 
you have designed and use it always in different ways and feel different things about it, no matter what you do. Uh, and I think that's that's important to remember. But also um, within everything that we design, especially uh, highly technological products that have complex behavior within them, they're much more complicated than light switches or hammers because they have this behavior. And within that, we can put a political intent. This is political with a small P, not meaning right or left, but it's about power. And some tools that I work with assume more power over me than I have over it in that they become coercive. And I find that an unpleasant experience. And in some situations, that's perfectly okay, where it says, do not push this button, the nuclear power station will explode. And I'm very happy to have the system go, I have very specialized knowledge about this mission critical issue. But in other situations, I'm going, you're a word processor. I am the intelligent person writing, do what I say, or at least come to me without pretending that you're smarter than me. It may well be that they are, but I don't <laughs> like to feel that. So it gives me a bad experience. We have been recently uh, stalking you online and uh, reading the articles that you've been talking about. So we we have been, you know, the one thing that is discovered is that you talk about uh, generative, participatory, critical, and sculptive uh, design. So can you share mm -hmm. some examples of such designs and how that actually goes into the mix with the interaction design as a whole? Certainly, generative design is a, an area that crosses over with my art practice and has done for a very long time. And I remember being a young man, maybe in my early teens, and I was fortunate my father bought uh, one of the first available home computers, brought it back and went, here you go, do something with it. And uh, it had a cassette drive in it. That was how you recorded and loaded data. And the keyboard was not QWERTY. It was alphabetic. It went A, B, C, D, E, F. Uh, and it had a glorious four kilobytes of memory. And it could do very, very little, but it, you could program in basic within it. And I'd never got to be very good, but I had these amazing ideas that I could program things where the computer would make new answers. So I could say, I wanted to make electronic music and electronic art, and I was 12 years old and I didn't know what I was doing, but I imagined that I could program the computer in some way that it would start making new things that I'd never heard before. And I found that fantastically exciting. The idea of um, bringing complexity from simple rules and exploring the shape of those rules. And this is a very common theme within art that's been going for a long time, even going back to um, Tchaikovsky and other musicians, composers, who wrote ways to assemble short phrases of music in thousands and thousands of different permutations. And you would roll dice and assemble pieces of sheet music to say, this is the field, or this is the structure, and this is the theme. And we can mix it in so many different ways and make huge complexity. And I find that incredibly exciting for generative design. And the, the practical applications from a more commercial sense, other than saying we can use this to explore ways of generating text or sound or visual material or new types of 3D shapes, is it's being applied to say, here are some basic rules. Explore thousands of permutations of how this building may be arranged and simulate people walking around inside buildings. So architects are starting to take in elements of generative design. Um, 
uh, in product design and development, people are saying, well, here are the points where this system needs to bear load and weight. Explore with the parameters you understand of forces and physics, different ways to build me a structure for a bridge or the, the frame for a bicycle or a racing car. And I think within digital products, people are starting to see if I need a response from the system, I could pre-program all the responses. And that's expensive and it takes a long time and it can get pretty boring. But if I can give the system a sense of a range of possibility, perhaps it can be nuanced and subtle and textured and slightly different every time within the parameters that the user would expect. So I think from the ideas of generative design and generative art of, of randomness and stochastic functions and using things like Markov chains, where you can say, I'm standing here and this is the probability that I might go somewhere else next. And when I get there, this is a probability that I might go somewhere else next. So all the pieces are logical, but the variation can be huge. I think is a power that from a design perspective is beginning to be harnessed. And when one looks at the practical applications that people are finding that are not evil of things like machine learning and mm -hmm. techniques within the field of artificial intelligence, there's a lot of exciting new material to work with complexity and procedural generation and machine learning as a design material. And we're starting to see that being discussed quite seriously. So I'm very excited about that. Okay. So with the next segment, I'm going to you know, take a break from the serious discussion and I have this deck of cards and I have some questions here and uh, which you might not be prepared for. And they're just, you know, a fun segment as to just add to you know, do the banter part of the UX. Um, so you ready? Mm, let's go for it. Okay. Your favorite TV show of all time? My favorite TV show of all time. Wow. Okay. There was a British TV show called The Clangers, which was animated with tiny little wool characters who lived on a planet of their own. Okay. Favorite holiday destination? Favorite holiday destination, the beach both as a physical and spiritual place. Any beach? Any beach, as long as it's, oh no, in fact, it doesn't have to be sunny. It just has to be the beach. Really? <laughs> so it doesn't matter if it is Western Superman or Nice? Uh, Western Superman, if the tide is in, because if the tide is out, you have to walk two kilometers to get to the water. <laughs> True. A book that had big influence on you. I think there's a book called Roadside Picnic. Mm -hmm. It's a science fiction book by a guy, by a pair of brothers called Arkady and Boris Strugatsky, who are uh -huh. Russians. And they wrote it partly as an allegory about Russian society at the time. But one of my favorite film directors, Andrei Tarkovsky, took it and turned it into the film Stalker. And the film is just ridiculously crazy, arty, lost who knows what's going on the book is very very direct but beautiful i think that's my favorite book i should try both of them your favorite mobile phone app my calendar so far we have notes tiktok one entry went to uber and new entry that comes in with calendar so i believe the <laughs> productivity <laughs> amazing okay so one person alive or dead would you like to grab a drink with you me oh I, we are going to definitely going to meet uh, next month looking forward to it that would be fantastic <laughs> okay and 
the industry you always wanted to work for but never got a chance i mean that is a tricky question because by the looks of it you have done everything i mean you teach in hong kong and bristol and now in germany and i know you know the class trips to the amsterdam and rotterdam mm-hmm. there were a lot of things were happening and mm-hmm. you do uh, sculpture art with machines and you have written books you make films uh, again so this question you know really is interesting to me to realize that what is it that has actually gotten away I started out as a young man. I, I, I came from my master, went into doing startups in interactive music stuff, started my first company, went into interactive TV, did a big startup with that, which is how I ended up living in Hong Kong, left that, spent several years living just from art practice, started a drag racing team, drag racing camper vans, made a clothing label, made another clothing label, made a couple of web consultancies, then came into teaching in academia, which I love but I always had a hankering to have a bar or a restaurant. <laughs> amazing, amazing. But the reason I could never open a bar is because I felt like I had to be a small-time gangster first, and then I could open my <laughs> bar. Recently, I've been teaching myself to cook uh, Japanese food uh-huh. and um, had the luxury pleasure to be taught how to make ramen noodle with a chef in Osaka spend mm-hmm. the day with him in his kitchen. I would love to open a not very good izakaya Japanese bar restaurant and just do noodles and cold beer. Nice one. That, that sounds like a plan. That's a retirement <laughs> dream, isn't it? <laughs> so where will that be? In, in, in Berlin? In, in Amsterdam, maybe? Oh, wherever I could set it up and not go broke. On a beach. Uh, in Goa. Be... Wow. Okay. Uh would that would would ramen noodles work in Goa? I don't know. There are a lot of tourists, so yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> have you been to India? I have not had the pleasure of going to India. Um, we nearly opened an office in Mumbai, and I never never had the chance to go. And it's the one. I, it, India is so huge. There's so much to see. I would love to come and and spend six months just to start to get a flavor of the North and the South and the East and the West. So just to uh, break the news, we, uh, I live in Indore and we are right in the middle. Uh, we live by the river Narmada, which is the border between North India and South India. So if you can, if you ever want to come here, you can, you know, base your camp here. We have the office and everything, all the facilities, and you can explore both North and South uh, with well-connected central place from here. <laughs> I would absolutely love that and I, I know that you're coming to Europe soon and um, I'm hoping that we can meet up in Amsterdam and perhaps I can twist your arm and have you come to Berlin and maybe do a guest keynote to some of our students about your experience of working and where you've come from in your journey. Absolutely, would love to do that. So last question, one day in your life you would like to relive? This is where I feel all serious. The, the, the birth of my children. That's the proper serious answer. But there's a fun answer. Yeah, no, I'll go with that. This is something that, you know, I have asked this and family is always going to be the answer that people go with. And mm-hmm. I absolutely believe that 
the day spent with family and you know people together i think that is what makes us human and those are the days that people want to relive and uh, thank you for uh, being that candid uh, on that answer so while we are about the human side of things how important do you think is the understanding of human computer interaction when you are designing uh, digital products i think it's absolutely fundamental although human computer interaction is an old description now it's still relatively accurate is it's people interacting with computer systems in some way uh and if you were designing some other kind of product you wouldn't say oh i'm designing a car but i'm not going to look at the shape of people the physical ergonomics is so important to to physically oriented products and understanding of of mental ergonomics it used to be called cognitive ergonomics which came from you know needing to build chairs that were actually the right height for people to put their bottoms on in comfort understanding even just that principle that it's humans interacting with computer systems has to be foundational to that um otherwise you make dysfunctional products that brutalize people and if they people like them then you're you're lucky it didn't happen by design it happened by luck when we are talking about products and the innovation side of things i mean research plays definitely the the big role in coming out with the right solutions so would you like to talk about a little bit about research through design i mean how does that work research through design is relatively recent as an area that people talk about and it comes from quite a lot of discussion some of which has been going on for quite a few decades and some has come from places like design interactions at the royal college of art in the interaction design lab uh, people like Elgeva and Anthony Dunn and Fiona Raby and many other really smart and thoughtful people thinking about what is the status of design which is geared towards artifacts and exploration mm-hmm. in the field of research especially when one talks about scientific research and if we're going to p- publish papers and write, write academically and think academically about research in the design context there's a problem because within design there isn't ever a single optimal solution and this is one of the thing gave argues beautifully and and also several other people talk about this um uh the challenge is within physics you can say this is how this molecule bonds with this other molecule and that's it that is how it works and potentially within engineering one can go to a single linear perfect solution or optimal solution but the minute you put humans into the mix things change and um two writers called Rittel and Weber wrote about this and they talked about the wicked problem which is a, a problem that is insolvable it's intractable partly because it has people in it and partly because the circumstances are continually changing and this is one thing that we need to remember as digital designers when we design things for people to solve a particular need or problem today that need or problem may change tomorrow the people may change and even the fact that we've now designed something to help people with a particular situation changes the situation which is completely mind melting it's <laughs> but it but it does mean that 
design is a generative process, which is why we ideate. We can analyze problems. We can work in participatory design with the people that would use the things that we might make. And we would ideate and say, well, look, here are 10 equally successful or relevant or effective designs, but they're all different. And this is the point that, that comes out from the idea of research through design is that the artifacts that we make, the things that we make can be vehicles for research themselves. And the artifacts can be outputs of the research. And that's an interesting challenge because unlike physics and unlike chemistry, the, the mix of all of the elements change. And maybe even we could go to the weirdness of quantum mechanics in that actually observing the experiment changes the outcome of the experiment. But it does mean that we need these critical approaches to thinking of what is it that we do as designers and what can we be certain of and what must we accept that we're uncertain of. Technology would like us to promise that things will be perfect, that things will be certain. Mm -hmm. And what we do know is that that's not really true. True. So when, when we are talking about design versus art, design is solving a problem. Art is artist's personal expression that how things should be. I mean, that is a very broad stroke definition if I have to put it out there. And then there is something about making art with machines. I've mm. seen those 3D faces that was generated by one of the algorithms that you were working on a few years ago. I'm not sure mm. if that project is still going on. So what is the status of it? And can you, would you like to talk about that? As I said, I, I mentioned this earlier, my father bringing home a computer when I was very young and me looking at it and realizing I could program something to be animated or be moving. And I could step away from the computer and the computer would keep it going. And I could put randomness in there and it would then do things that surprised me. And I like that working with things that can animate objects ideas outside of one's own body in one's head you can relate concepts to each other and think oh this idea connects to that one and look internally but with a computer i found this empty electronic space you could take the ideas out and put them into the computer and represent them and they would be animated and explored and that's what i mean for me thinking about making art with machines and that you know um this fantastic uniball black mitsubishi uh, automatic pencil is a great machine but it doesn't have complex behavior and machines with complex behavior suddenly give you what john cage would call the x factor even working with old analog machines maybe this is part of the attraction with ele electronic music everyone wants, wants to go back to analog synthesizers and and filmmakers talk about shooting things on chemical film and recording musicians on tape because there's a an x factor in there and whether it's analog machines or digital machines i i like that because it almost becomes a, a nuanced conversation that you have with the system to explore the system whether it's um programming at a very high level in c plus plus or pushing the bounds of an analog tape recorder to see what happens if you overload the inputs and you get these amazing new noises that you've never expected out. I find that interesting of exploring, creating with complexity, with complex machines that give us unexpected things back. 
True. I mean, this is uh, somewhat, I saw this documentary about a doctor who's opening music sequence. Back in the day, they used so random techniques to generate that haunting music. And also mm. the filmmaker Quentin Tarantino still likes to uh, hear the audio on a magnetic cassette tape because he thinks that that is where the sound should be. And that is how his films should uh, sound like. Yeah, yeah. So this has been a wonderful interaction. And I believe that one of the deepest conversations that I had about design in, in years. And I you know, really am grateful that you actually agreed to come on our first season of this podcast and hoping that in coming season, we would have the pleasure to get you back here with the deep insights and further conversations. I'm going to see you next month somewhere around Europe, Amsterdam. And definitely I will look, take up you on, on your offer to have that drink. Yes. Mm. And also about Berlin, we can talk about that. And hopefully that, you know, I can also pitch you the idea of opening your bar in Goa. <laughs> so that should that should work out. Dushant, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. Um, it's really thought-provoking to hear you asking these kinds of questions. And it's really, really great to talk with you again. So thank you very much. You are welcome. And thanks once again. So ladies and gentlemen and people, everybody who is listening to this podcast, this is Dushant Karango signing off for this week's episode. Next week, we'll have another amazing guest who have to follow through with what we discussed today. So very long way to go. And with each episode that is going by, we are getting a variety of different answers and amazing guests who have been part of the show so far. So stay tuned and watch out for the next week's episode. Thank you very much. Have a great day ahead. Bye.